I'm Hannah, and this is Graveyard Gathering, my own little writing graveyard where things are aged, knocked over, and imperfect. A place for my work as a necromancer to explore all of the things with death and great morbidity and I'm sure lots of grave mistakes. Come gather around. I'd love to talk to you. Oh no, guys, the mood has struck me twice in one day. Don't expect this. I'm never going to put out content with any sort of regularity or consistency until I get my shits way more together than they are. But I did feel like we're doing a second episode today. So here we go. Building off the previous episode, I talk a lot about how necromancy is a language. That is just my metaphor for how it works for me. However you decide to do your necromancy is up to you. I call it a language because I find that trying to interpret different energies relates to me like trying to translate different languages. So how do you get into starting to practice that? How do you do that for yourself? How do you start to learn the language of necromancy, right? If you're you're just trying to figure that out for yourself, where do you start? I don't know. It's going to look different for you, but I can tell you where I've started and what I've done. And you can decide if that fits you and that fits how you want to start steps in your own path or if you want to implement these wherever you are. I like to start with known tag locks. Tag locks are very simply uh, the energetic links that we can create through different physical objects. Your name is a tag lock to you. It is an individual identifier for who you are. That is why names of entities, uh, names of people, your true name, that is why different witches would take on different names. Your name can have power over you. When people are, when I'm doing baneful work, for example, I get real specific with names. So start with the name as the basic tag lock that you're going to be working with. So when you're reaching out in necromancy, sometimes you are reaching out for a specific person and therefore you want their name. Sometimes I am personally not reaching out to a specific person. I'm asking whatever dead is trying to bug me what they want. I don't always know their name. I have some spirits. They don't want to give me their name. I have some that have forgotten their names. It it really depends on the entity because we're like all different and different people. So some spirits are like, you're a practitioner. I'm going to give you my name. So you got respect first. But if you're working with an entity like, okay, I started in necromancy working at contacting my dead grandfather because I was in so much grief and I waited several years before I started to try to reach out to him. But I wanted the connection with my beloved dead that I missed badly. So I started with his name and I didn't even I think I used his formal name. But I also used his name to me. I used Bumpa and Grandpa. Those were identifiers that called him to me. I also use my blood as a tag lock. Now, there are specific blood magic rituals that you harvest your blood and use them for things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I am filled. I'm a meat and blood balloon. The blood that floats around in my body, I ain't got to pull that out to use that as a tag lock for somebody that is in my own bloodline. my The blood that flows through my veins, I don't got to yank it out of my body to use that to call someone to me. I am calling blood to blood. I don't got to rip it out of me to do that. So I will call my grandfather's spirit to me, to me blood to blood, so I don't always use his graveyard dirt 
or his name or different uh, like I have different tag locks for him. So I have cards that he's written. I have his handwriting. I have things in his own hand. I have items of his, I have a jacket. So I might use those items when I really, really miss him. I will, um, sometimes I'll just grab his jacket and occasionally, as we've talked about, I, I do get, I, I can never fucking remember what the olfactory clairvoyance is, but that jacket is so many years. This man has been dead for eight years, but occasionally his jacket will still be filled with the smell of him. And that motherfucker has been washed. So sometimes I will want those extra tag locks like the jar of his graveyard dirt, uh, the cards that he's written me. Those are other extra things. But baseline, blood to blood and his name is enough to get his attention. And this is a belief that is personal to me. Take it or leave it. But I think that the dead are around us all the time. I think that the dimension of the spiritual plane and the physical plane intersect a lot more than we think it does, but our ability to perceive that connection is limited, particularly because I think that when we are in the physical plane, experiencing the physical plane, our primary course of life choices and direction and interaction should be in the physical plane. If you are spending 90% of your time in the spiritual plane or any, even um, 60%, a majority, don't spend the majority of your time walking around in astral spaces. And you can't be, you can't be, you have to be present to your life. I will repeat this until I'm blue in the face, but the biggest thing that the dead tell me collectively, a bunch of different folks will be like, Hey, it's really cool that you want to talk to us and stuff. Uh, but pay attention to your fucking life. Be like, hey, humans spend way more time dead than they spend alive. Uh, you're going you're gonna to be dead soon enough. Like, be alive. So remember that when you're trying to throw yourself into your craft, sometimes we use these tools and spiritual activities and experiences as a way to disassociate from our real life. And I flat out have dead folks who are like, yeah, no, I like talking to you and shit, but go be alive. Because sometimes I will be doing necromancy and I specifically do a lot of my necromancy rituals during the winter season. Um, I modify my craft very specifically around nature and the seasons. Where I live gets four seasons throughout the year. So I modify my craft to fit the natural seasons that occur around me. From the middle of October all the way through winter is my high necromancy season. Spring summer and Mabon, so like in September and harvest season, are about different rituals. I do a lot of fertility stuff. I do a lot of fire festival stuff. I do a lot of other energetic work. So then I save my late fall winter seasons for my high, a lot of my necromancy work and rituals. For why? Because again, I like to match myself with the season. So right now it is December and where I live in the middle of Iowa is cold as shit. I still spend a great deal of time outside. I have set up my front porch space as a neutral spiritual zone. I've set up my wards all around my house and in my house and outside of my house and all around. But I have this specific slot in my porch that is neutrally warded that can invite things in. Specifically neutral and benevolent things because it is warded against malevolent things. We stay with the good. We stay with the neutral. We fuck out the bad. And I still have to repeatedly cleanse that space and maintain it much more so than I do my other spaces because it gets a lot of traffic. Any place, imagine that every different spiritual entity walking through can leave footprints and footsteps and dirt. You got to sweep that shit out. Otherwise, shit gets gross. See what I'm saying? That's just an energetic metaphor, but that is at least what I have found in my own experience. For some things, I want that dirty, musty energy. I'll collect energy through an entire season and then 
use it at the end of the season and then sweep the fuck out. But winter is specifically a time where things are dying, dead, and focusing on their roots. I like to mirror that. So I will focus on the dead and I will focus on my roots. When I go back to my roots, I look at my ancestors and my spirit guides. That is how that translates in from the physical to the spiritual. Also, as I get cold, uh, the heat leaving your body, eventually, if you stay out in exposure for too long, you die. So as I am doing work outside in my necromancy space in the cold, the colder I get, oftentimes the clearer things are. Closer and closer I get to sometimes dangerous edges. I will come inside and my husband will be like, that was dumb. Now you have a nosebleed and you're freezing. I also tend to smoke a lot of cigarettes while I'm doing necromancy. Why? Because every cigarette is a little death. I am participating in an act of little death while I am reaching out to the dead. It's an energetic link to being dead. Is it a great idea? No. Uh, it's bad for you. It's just a thing I do because I'm already addicted to cigarettes. You want to do that but you don't smoke? Light one up for the dead. Uh, you don't have to puff on it. You don't have to smoke on it. Keep it lit. Keep it circulating in the air. You are not particularly taking five minutes off of your own life because you're not inhaling like me, like an asshole, but you are emanating that kind of energy anyway. And also I found different dead people. They like cigarettes. It's a common offering all over. Um, some people prefer cigars and will, I, I usually once or twice a year, I give cigars to my dead too, but oftentimes smokies. And you can offer up all different kinds of smoke. Uh, you can sane, you can, if you're Celtic, um, you can do smoke cleansing and you can offer up. I found some spirits really like one of the principles that I have heard is that the more fragrant and pungent, uh, the more it can permeate and it depends on how you feel about veils and shit. But at different points, a lot of the principles of why we burn things is that smoke in itself is an in-between, uh, and ideally, those really pungent scents could apparently permeate beyond the physical. So you've got all of your accoutrement, whatever it is you want. You've either got your name, the blood in your body, items from that person, graveyard dirt from that person, something was theirs, something that was handwriting, whatever it is. You got your shit, right? Now what are you going to do? I would recommend before you are trying to call any spirits to you, that you set up a space that welcomes them. And I wouldn't set it up. Some people are very comfortable inviting spirits into their home and into their altar space. That is completely up to preference. I only have very specific spirits that I let inside of my home, that I let near my hearth, and that I let in my deepest sanctuary. So we can look at different traditions uh, all over, but you would have sometimes an inner sanctum to a temple. You would have areas where the divine would meet, and then you would have areas outside of that where different work would be done, right? So I look at my hearth and the altars that I have set up in my home as very, very sacred. That is my innermost sanctum. So you, I had to fuck with you heavy before I'm letting you in there. So I had to set up a space outside. And why do I like outside? Because then I am more connected with the nature and I have to be more careful about how long I'm in that space because when it's fucking cold outside, I can't spend six hours doing it. 
when I started my practice, we lived in a different location and I had everything set up in my basement. And I found that I had problems inviting just anybody to walk up into my space. Occasionally, I I had a lot more negative interactions because I was just letting anybody come in because I do things like a mad scientist. So I wasn't prepping myself and prepping my space. I was just casting out wildly and seeing what I could catch. And sometimes I caught really, really cool shit and sometimes very bad shit. Strong, do not recommend. So setting up a neutral space is great. And when you do it outside, you are in contact with the outer elements, which puts a physical time limit, especially if you're in winter, on how long you can do that. Uh, Oftentimes your body will tell you when you have been doing something for too long. For me, when I have been doing any kind of working for too long, my nose will start bleeding like a fountain. Also, occasionally, depending on what kind of working I will do, Uh, Because I do a lot of physical activity in a lot of my spell work, I tie a lot of things to the physical energy. I'll be walking and doing spell work. I'll be dancing. My hands will be moving. Uh, All of those things are a part of the way I gather up energy and direct it. That can become exhausting. So I'll also know I've pushed too hard because I'll be done with a working and I've got to go sleep for 17 hours. That is not an exaggeration. I sometimes will have to be done with a working and sleep for 12 to 17 hours. Yeah. Usually once a season, once a winter, excuse me, once a winter season, I will do big, big ward workings in and around my home. And that requires miles and miles of walking around my home and and in my property space. And typically by the time I am done with that, I am flat the fuck out exhausted. But it's like a once a year thing. My family as a whole actually contributes to the wards of our home. My mother will do circular walking throughout our property praying protection over it. My children participate in walking around our property, praying protection over it. And as I've said, and I'm sure other episodes, I will get the plants and the animals, uh, tag locks from all of them that support our home. And then we make a charged water with all of those different ingredients. And we anoint the whole home with all that shit. We make everything that sits upon the property, try to work together to create wards that are woven in that protect the space. And then there's a specific separately warded area made to be neutral where we invite things in. Things that we then have stuff set up to also banish. The first like rule of like witchcraft is like, don't summon what you can't banish. Makes sense, right? So now you've got your space set up and you've got your tag locks. What the fuck? What do we do now, right? Meditation is the best place to start. And I wish there was a better answer because I find meditation personally to be a struggle. So for me, I had to change the way meditation looked. When I started my practice and started meditation, it was finding something guided, getting myself into the appropriate headspace, clearing my mind, being present to my body, and listening to the meditation and then leaving and and trying to clear as much of my mental space as possible, okay? And that's a good practice. Starting out with like 10 minutes a day in a guided meditation to start training your body to get into the place where you can be more aware is really helpful. But in my practice, in order for me to do that consistently, I had to change what meditation looks like. For me now, meditation looks like putting on whatever specific music is trying to fit the energy that I am trying to summon and the headspace that I am trying to get into and walking. For some people, meditation 
requires bodily stillness. It does not for me. I need to be able to get out of my head and get out better and still remain present to the body. So when you are doing any kind of necromancy work, you need to be aware of yourself and yet separated. If you are too aware of yourself, you're not going to get messages as easily. I'm sure you still can, but it comes much harder when you're focused on like, oh, my foot hurts. Oh, my nose itches. Oh, like, oh, it's cold. Oh, I tripped. Those different things. You've got to be able to put those minor things completely out of your brain, at least in my experience. When I am doing like direct channeling, it feels like my, I, I kind of make a mental picture of my brain like a cockpit. And there's a backwards, there's a back seat and a front seat. I am no longer in the front seat. I'm a backseat driver. And I can take the controls. But what I am trying to do is sit and let somebody else sit in the cockpit. That's direct channeling is some of the hardest that I've ever done, but I get the clearest messages that way. I get the clearest information and the clearest energetic communication that way. But it's not the only way to do necromancy. And it's actually one of the most like dangerous because you are inviting something in your cockpit. I want to make a cockpit joke, but you get what I'm saying, right? If you're not wanting to invite people to just hop into your brain and hop into your body because <laughs> that's a little touchy touchy isn't it you want to just have a more outward conversation you want to be able to receive messages but not necessarily give someone complete control over yourself that is where getting into that meditative space and starting to examine what information your third eye is giving you if your brain is a blank slate what comes in a great way to start practicing this is get, getting all the shit you need, getting into your space, and then try things like automatic writing. See what happens and what comes forth from you when your mind isn't focused on anything. Sit with, like, maybe, maybe have an idea or a theme that you want, but don't marry yourself too hard to anything. See what messages are willing to, to filter in when you can put your mind in a place of stillness and blankness. This is where a journal is good. Like I said, automatic writing is a great way to start. Maybe you're sitting there, maybe you're trying this, and nothing is coming. That's okay. Sometimes we ring a doorbell and nobody answers. Don't get discouraged from that. All of this is continued practice. You might go, well, I wrote a bunch of stuff down. But I think it was just my imagination. Okay. Um, let it be. Don't decide that it has to be anything. What you're trying to do is just train yourself to be receiving information in an entirely new way that has nothing to do with how you receive information in the physical realm normally. And remember that when we're trying to learn a new language, when we're trying to learn a new form of communication, you do not start out speaking fluently. We start out with ABCs. So the first types of messages that you may be getting, it could be a smell that you can't account for. It could be a thought that you can't account for. It could be encouragement that suddenly just doesn't feel like it comes from you. Lean into that. You have to cultivate your discernment. Your discernment has to be something that you know inside and out. And the practice of meditating and the practice of automatic writing can help you get into a space of where you know 
the things that come from you and you know the things that come from spirit. And it starts to train you to practice at seeing the difference. You'll start to tell when it flows differently. When I am writing my, my own book, for example, I know when I can get into a good creative groove. I also know the difference between a creative groove and when spirit is like, bitch, pay attention to this. Another way that I've been able to see when it is spirit versus just my, my own internal monologue, for example, I know that my internal brain is mean to me consistently. I'm not good at positive reinforcement and positive self-talk. No. And so when I am really at my lowest is one of those times where I will reach out oftentimes to my grandfather, for example, who in life was a terrible comforter. He was not good at it. I remember once I called him crying and he literally told me, oh, they're there. That was not his forte. And yet still I could feel very recently, energetically, he was like, are you telling me right now that you want to kill yourself because you're not getting your own way, sis? And even though that was a little bit like calling me out, I knew exactly where that was coming from. I could feel him very clearly. It was, you get to a point where you, once the energy becomes very familiar to you, you can feel it when it's there. Now, there are plenty of times when the dead and the spiritual shit does things in the physical. I have had spirits regularly move shit around my space. There are experiences that will happen that I can't go, oh yeah, no, one of the kids did that. Or, you know, mom must have put that there. There are those specific instances that happen where there is no other explanation than, oh no, dead people. I know that sounds crazy, but if you're here, you've already suspended that kind of disbelief. At least I hope so. Otherwise, I don't know why you're 21 minutes into this shit. You're going to have to jump along with me for the ride that dead people move stuff. Okay? I have literally had um, a light that I had no electrical components to create emanate from my purse and then shit appear in my purse when nobody touched it and I was previously looking at my purse. You see what I'm saying? A purse that I was not touching, that a light emanated from, and then a piece of paper appeared in. You see what I'm saying? Like that, I don't have an explanation other than dead people for that. So there, there, there comes a time when there is like physical evidence of this shit, but that is not constant. It's not going to be the sole way shit communicates with you. If it is, damn, you're lucky. I wish. It would be so much clearer if they could just, this piece, this is the shit you need right here. Yeah, I don't get that all the time. Once, once it for important shit, I get that stuff. And I'll talk about the fact that visual manifestations are not a thing that I get a lot of. I think it's really cool. It's happened to me once or twice. Uh, it's it's not uh, it's not a big phenomenon. I don't see ghosts all the time. I fucking wish. I can see them in my third eye. I can see them in my mind's eye. But physical, visual manifestations is a thing that has been rare in my personal experience. Now, I think that could possibly be that I have really, really blocked visual manifestations from being a way to communicate with me. But in my experience, I just don't get that very much. The biggest instance I ever had of visual manifestation was when we lived in a house that was plagued with this Something evil. I don't I never figured out what it was. We we didn't we only lived there seven months and it was hell. But when my husband and I first got married, we lived with his grandmother, and I have never met 
a darker, more possessed house. And it was funny because there was Christian paraphernalia everywhere. We had a crucifix in every room. His grandmother was Irish Catholic. We had a crucifix in the bathroom. I gotta tell you, looking at Jesus when you're trying to take a shit, dying on the cross is a trip. But there was Christian paraphernalia up and down this house. And this particular spirit did not give a fuck. One time, it took the entire family's set of family rosaries and hung them on all of the doorknobs. After an instance where my husband had gotten literally in front of me, I watched him. He was standing in the hallway. I was sitting in the bed and my husband just got grabbed by nothing and thrown as hard as it possibly could throw him into the wall, denting the wall. My husband is six foot one, six foot two, a good solid 200 pounds, 220 pounds, and got ripped into the wall and thrown like he was a rag doll right in front of my face. That shit was terrifying. That thing grabbed my hair and ran its hands through my scalp in the shower one time. It did weird shit in the bathroom, despite the crucifix. So when the rosary thing happened, all of us who lived in the house were in the bathroom together. We were bathing our then three-year-old child. And because of the shit that had happened that was so crazy, we were like, nope, we, we now all do this shit together. So we were bathing our son in the bathroom. We had the door closed. We walk out and I can't remember what we did to piss the spirit off, but it had taken all of the family's rosaries and hung them from all of the doorknobs. And one that my husband had specifically thrown into the Mississippi goddamn river was on the floor wet. At the time that this happened, I had very little witchy experience. I I was like 20 years old. I was like, what the fuck is this? We gathered all the rosaries and we brought them to his grandmother and she was like, where did, where did you get these? I haven't seen these in 20, 30 years. And I'm like, Grandma, they were hanging on all the doorknobs. Like, I, I don't know. It felt very much like that spirit was saying, your Christian accoutrement cannot harm me. I can touch anything covered in Jesus in this house. Fuck you. So at the time, we were able to ward it out of our bedroom. We had our son in a like separated space in our, we had a very, very large bedroom. So we had our son who was three in a separated space in the room. And then we had our space and we had a little divider and we were all in the same bedroom and we could ward it out of our bedroom. My husband had put the helm of awe and a couple specific protection symbols and wood burned them into the door. And we had salt along all of the floors and it created enough separation that it couldn't get into my room, but it could get everywhere else. At night, what would happen is when my husband would work third shift, up in the attic above me, it would just circle and circle and circle. All night, you could hear footsteps in an attic where there were no people circling over and over without ceasing. In order to sleep, I would have to put on music loud enough to cover that. And we had very specific practices about fear when we lived in that house. It could feed off of the fear that we had. So we had to approach everything that was fucking terrifying with this in, like fearlessness. Because if you were to give into it, shit would get so much worse. So we had warded it out of our bedroom and my husband was working third shift. So I had my door open and there was a light in the hallway one of those like exposed bare lights. It didn't have like a hood on it. And it would create like silhouettes if someone was standing in my doorway. So I look up and I thought I saw my husband standing in the doorway. It was a silhouette 
of what looked to be a man, uh, tall, similar build to my husband. And, you know, I was kind of tired. It was like the probably like one or two in the morning. And I was about to respond and call my husband into my room because I was like, why are you standing there? And my phone rings. It's my husband on the phone on his way home from work asking me if I want anything. And I'm like, you're not standing in the hallway right now. No. Hannah, shut the door. Hannah, shut the door. Hannah, shut the door right now. And the door shut by itself. It slammed and scared me to almost pissing my pants. I fucking hate that spirit. Um, Occasionally when I am in the town where that house is, I can still feel that fucking thing looking at me like it's made of sludge. And I can't (laughs) from like literally I'll cross the river. I can look where that house is and I can feel that motherfucker seething. Another thing that happened while we lived there is we were gifted wine when we got married. Uh, It took the wine that we got gifted. And when we poured it out, we started with the first bottle that my friend had handmade. He made his own wine, gave it to us. I poured that into a glass, took a drink, and then spit it out immediately because it tasted like blood. And I was like, maybe he fucked it up. Maybe, maybe some, maybe this was homemade wine. Maybe somehow this wasn't the spirit. Maybe he just fucked it up somehow. Because I didn't want to automatically jump to the spirit made my wine taste like blood. So I moved over to Arbor Mist Merlot Blackberry shit that I knew exactly what it was supposed to taste like. Nope, that shit tasted like blood too. I poured out two bottles of perfectly good wine because they tasted so oxidized and like fucking blood. They were thick and it was so disgusting. I was like, I don't like living here. This is this is awful. I, I journaled all of those experiences because I'm never going to believe this shit later. It still sounds nuts to me. And we lived in this place for seven horrific months. When we finally moved... Uh, something changed. Like, I think this, I think we vacuumed up the salt or something that had changed in the spirit's ability to get into our room. Because after we moved all of our stuff and after we cleaned it out, my mother-in-law was furious. Uh, my stepmother-in-law, I gotta be clear because my one mother-in-law is dead, but no, my stepmother-in-law was furious at us. And I'm like, what did I do? What the fuck? Uh, the entire bedroom had been ripped apart and everything that was still in there was thrown into a pile into the middle of the room including the uh floor to ceiling bookshelves that had been against the wall that was ripped from the wall and thrown in the middle of the room something went through that room like a hurricane in rage i had family members that are like you know very christian woo woo but very very christian woo woo They didn't like coming into that house. They could feel something awful the moment they walked in. You could could feel the energy of this place, regardless of how sensitive you were or how woo-woo you were. It felt dark. So that was my my first, like, really big spiritual experience, right, when I was a baby, baby witch. And I was very, very, I don't know, traumatized isn't really the right word, but it was fucked up. And that is what got me into the space of, like, I want to know more about this and I want to be able to have more control over what the fuck is happening. Because you see, the thing that lived there had attacked my three-year-old at one point. I was furious. I I still, someday, someday I'm going to find that motherfucker. I'm going to get him out of that house and I'm going to fuck his life up. I know it's a him because my three-year-old could see him all the time and called him him with a capital H and he was fucked up. That is the 
biggest visual manifestation I've ever gotten. And it was from something that was powerfully evil. Anything that tries to hurt kids is fucking evil. Um, I don't, I don't usually talk about this too much, but the reason why we were all in the bathroom when the rosary thing happened is because we were giving my son a bath and he didn't like baths at the time. He was a preschooler and he was kind of scared of the water. So we would get like colors and fun things to try to make it fun. Well, uh, something grabbed his ankles one time and tried to pull him under the water. My husband was right in there because we, we, we would give him baths together. We made it a family thing. So he grabbed him immediately and had him up under his arms. And again, my husband's a big, strong man. He was struggling against something to pull our son out of the water. Now, his head never went under the water. He wasn't, you know, we were right, right, right there. But when something grabs your child and you can't lift them out of a bathtub, that shit is terrifying. So that was how we, we always, anybody was in the shower, they were never alone because crazy shit happened in the fucking bathroom, man. So that was why we were all in the bathroom when the rosary thing happened. I just fucking hate that spirit. I'm gonna get him one day. Fucking bind him into a crystal or some shit. But I have been steadily playing with dead people since then. So I've got about well, 10 years of doing this and I have not had visual manifestations like that since. Now, I have spirits do things that I can't see. Uh, at work, I have spirits that close doors, open cabinets, walk around, make noise. Uh, one night, it was exactly midnight. I was sitting on the couch and right behind me, the door just shut. <laughs> there was no one. There was nothing. It had a door stopper <laughs> and the door just shut. And I'll just be like, hey, guys, not tonight. <laughs> and typically it stops. Uh, but occasionally they open cupboards and shut off lights. And I'll be like, hey, hey. I wanted that on. Visual manifestations? That's rare for me. If you get them, I'm jealous. You know, I'll talk a lot about the spiritualist movement um, because it influences me a lot. And one of the things that I liked about the spiritualist movement is they'll talk about how mediums and different people, you didn't have to be special. You didn't have, sp have to have special talents to be able to do this. It was just practicing. And that's something that I like a lot because that resonates with me. I don't have special magic powers. I am not extra wonderful because I do. No, I just fucking practice at it. We all have gifts. We all have things that we're naturally more talented at, whatever. Um, you have spiritual gifts too, but your spiritual gifting does not have to simply coincide with your areas of interest. And if you want to do this, you do not have to be the magical chosen one. You already are. You are because you decided that it's what you wanted to do. Anyone who is chosen for something has to decide that it is what they want and that they are going to rise up and do it. The fact that you have made the decision makes you special. There are plenty of other motherfuckers walking around in this world. This is not their calling. If you feel called to it, it's yours. Go take it. You don't have to have some cloud opening, light beaming, special chosen one. I'm sorry if that's what you wanted. I mean, you can ask for it, but you can also just be like, yeah, no, this is my purpose. I'm going to go live it and do that because I promise you that has more fulfillment and intention in it than the clouds parting and deciding that you are the most magical being because you were already born. <laughs> do you realize how rare it is that you exist? There had to be 
tens of thousands of ancestors. There had to be the, the stars crossing and aligning towards your birth. You're already special. The earth exists in this one in a million chance to support life for you to exist upon the crust of this fucking spinning ball of magma. You are special already. The clouds already parted when your mother brought you into the world, baby. You already got all of the anointing and all of the magic. You just have to practice and learn how to get it into your life. And see, in the movies and in the books, they montage all the practicing part. You get a nice little clip with a cool song about how all the practice and work and sweat they did so that we can skip that part and get to the good stuff. But unfortunately, in real life, we can't montage all the hard work. There is no substitute for just doing it. And if it is what you want, go after it. But like, be better than me and don't do it like a mad scientist. Learn from my mistakes. Do that for me. See, when I'm doing a lot of different ritual and random shit, I do that all with a keeper. So that is someone who is outside of the ritual space who can come and interrupt it and create safety in it if I'm doing something that has risk. So if you are looking at, like, say you, you want to do your first channeling experience and you're not really sure uh, how that could go. Okay, get your partner, get your best friend, get somebody that you trust who is comfortable. Get your spiritual mentor. Uh, fuck it. Call me. Um, <laughs> hit me up. I'll help you. Um, but you want somebody who's outside of that ritual space who can then interrupt it and help you regain your control. And sometimes if you are out of control and cannot regain it, they're going to help you. They are going to take control of the space. That is why my husband does not always actively participate in the channeling rituals, but he observes, he records, and makes sure that the place is safe. You want that. You do not want to be diving into all this shit just by yourself willy-nilly. Because if you are like me, you might attract shit that you didn't mean to. And uh, you might need, sometimes we just get ourselves in trouble that we need our help, way help out of. That's what I'm talking about. So you want someone who is physically present in the physical plane, who can create disruption and bring you back and help you regain your control. So that's why the position of a keeper needs to be someone that you have a good trusting bond with. They don't have to be a magical practitioner um, because when you are wanting to get out of a necromancy space, you want to get back into your body, back into the present, and back into, okay, I'm here, I have control again. That is where your meditative practice, where you have spent time leaving and returning, is good. You know how to come back. So if you're learning and budding in necromancy, and this is some shit that you want to do, here's like a quick couple thing, more things, a thousand things. I've got like 500 things. I can't be succinct to save my life. Recognize that that information is going to come to you lots of different ways. It could be a sound. It could be a song. It could be a smell. It could be a taste. It could be a bunch of automatic words. You can't necessarily limit yourself to one form of communication because you can't always anticipate the way that spirit is going to come in and communicate with you. That is like coming up to a random person and you already know everything that they're going to say 
No. So if you don't already know what someone is going to say, you don't know how they're going to say it. And when you're talking to dead people, the how is a lot wider than in the physical where we just talking. If you are of the tarot inclined, you can get into your meditative space and start pulling cards. That's a great way to practice your meditative space and allow automatic messages to come through without having to do automatic writing. You can take the spread and write interpretations based on what you feel is coming from spirit in the cards. To me, that's just the way that I do tarot divination and oracle card divination anyway. I am looking at whatever messages have come out randomly and interpreting them. That's however you, some people feel that their tarot experience is very secular and has no relation to spirit and is just psychology. Some people feel that their tarot interpretations are very spirit led. That's, you know, that is how you decide to apply that tool to your practice. And it can look different. It can look very secular or it can look very spiritual depending on how you are inclined. When I talk about spirit, and I probably covered this before, but I don't remember because I do episodes every several months. Uh, to me, spirit is a, is a giant abstract. Sometimes it's the spirit of my dead. Sometimes it's the spirit of my beloved guides. Sometimes it's, you know, etc. I leave it kind of broad uh, because that kind of broad stroke lets me get different kinds of messages from different things without marrying myself too tightly for somebody who doesn't always want to talk to me. My grandfather is not always fucking available. So sometimes I'll be reaching out, casting out real hard, and he's not the energy I'm going to meet. But one of my spirit guides is like, oh, you having problems? All right, I'm, I'm here. What's up? What the fuck? What do we got to do? One of the things that I think, I, I think I used to do a lot of channeling when I was much younger and had a lot less intellectual bias and barriers into what I was doing, I could let things filter in with that childlike uh, sense of complete trust. And so I sometimes I work in my meditative space and trying to get back into that. But probably that's just some old leftover Christian shit because they talk about childlike faith a lot. Um, childlike faith <laughs> is a great way to get manipulated. As we approach different spiritual things, you have to have a childlike open mind. Just remember that your mind can't be so open that the knowledge that you have fucking falls out. So that is a not remotely brief overview of some of the ways that I do necromancy, peppered with some weird stories, swear words, and random commentary. Thank you for enjoying my rambling. Finally, finally, some more shout outs. I would like to shout out to Lorelai Moon on TikTok because I love you and I find your energy wonderful and you bless me continually. Thank you for being a continued source of encouragement, affirmation, and positivity. Thank you for the craft that you lend and the space that you make. You are deeply appreciated. I want to shout out to Fire Lotus. Uh, if you're just coming in on this episode of this season, check out episodes one and two because those are my interviews with Fire Lotus and please go check out their podcast. I think I'm even on their podcast somewhere, <laughs> but go check them out. Also special love to Diane because I feel you. I feel your encouragement. I feel your love and you are precious to my heart. Thank you to all of the death witches that come in and give me love. Thank you to all of the practitioners that spend time with me, talk to me, and share with me. I appreciate you, and I am trying slowly but surely to get better at the shoutouts because there are actually quite um, a lot of you wonderful folks on Instagram and on TikTok who pour love into me, and you are so fucking precious, and you make literally all of this worth it. 
It is me continually screaming at the fucking void. And yet there is a handful of you motherfuckers that are fucking fantastic. And you help me feel not alone. And I love your energy and your presence in my life. Thank you. I will likely continue to be inconsistent, but I hope you've enjoyed my nonsense. All right. Until we do this again. Thanks. All of the extra music for my podcast is my father, the great musician, Rex Stratton. And you can find him on Spotify, on YouTube, or wherever you get your music. Give him a listen. It'll make his year. Thanks so much. This is Hannah with Graveyard Gatherings. All of the extra music for my podcast is original music from my dad, Rex Stratton. And you would make his year if you gave any of his music a listen on YouTube or Spotify. Today's song is near and dear to my heart. One of my favorites. I picked it because I love it so much. Rollin' the Clover Rover from his first album, Santa at the Gulag. This has been Graveyard Gatherings. See you at the next one. So this is Hannah of Graveyard Gatherings. Thanks for being here. I'll see you at the next one.